Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October the 13th, 2017, and this is episode 2099 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Friday, it's the Expert Council Q&A show today. And I've got a great lineup, including some folks we haven't heard from in a while, for various reasons. Uh, I have setting up a mist system for plant propagation with Nick Ferguson. I have choosing the right cookware with Chef Keith Snow. It's actually a question I answered last week, and Chef's going to answer it with, I don't think, any knowledge of what I said, so we'll see how that differs. We have some major rocket mass heater updates from Paul Wheaton. they got a big to-do going on up there in Montana right now. He and Josiah Wallingford will chime in with some updates from Wheatonville. And uh, we got troubleshooting ABS brake systems from the humble mechanic Charles Sanvold. Uh, Paul, and Char- Char- Paul and Charles, of course, we have not heard from in a while. Uh, Paul's been indisposed doing a million things, and uh, Charles has been on the road for like a month. So we're glad to hear from them again. Uh, we have heat-treating knife blades when you don't have the gear to do it yourself with Patrick Rorman. We have aiming for cash equivalency in 401Ks with John Pugliano. And uh, another guy we haven't heard from in a while, Steve Harris, who's been so busy with CAC teams and relief efforts in South Texas and, and what have you. Um, he's got a piece for us on tiny houses, electricity, and helping the elderly. And I'm going to chime in on that one, too, to anchor the show. Before we get into all that, let's uh, take a look at a year in history, in this case the year in history, the year 64. This is right when things are about to start coming apart in a way they haven't in Rome for a long time, and Rome will never be the same, the year 64. The Great Fire of Rome, contributed by David Verne. On the night of the 19th of July, a fire broke out among shops in Rome, storing flammable goods. The windy night quickly spread the flames to nearby and tightly packed apartment complexes. With no large buildings or temple complexes in the area of the city, Rome was almost completely defenseless to the blaze. It burned for six days before finally being brought under control and the 14 districts of Rome. And of the 14 districts of Rome, three had been completely leveled and only four had escaped all damage. Nero wasn't at Rome during the time of the fire. He was at Antietam. Uh, and he returned quickly to organize the relief effort, housing refugees in the undamaged part of the palace. He passed major reform to the fire code that widened the streets, used brick-faced concrete for new buildings, and limited the size of apartment buildings to 58 feet high. With a disaster of this size, the population began looking for an explanation of how it started. Rumors began flying that Nero had started it and that he had played his lyre while watching the city burn. Though this wasn't true, Nero's popularity had been waning for some time, and the rumor began to spread. Looking for a scapegoat to blame the disaster on, Nero turned to a small group mainly composed of foreigners, the Christians. This began the first persecution of Christians by Rome. My take by David Verne. The persecution was started by Nero's agents torturing Christians and forcing confessions. It's real convenient. You get somebody to confess, and then they're guilty, right? He then began ordering their deaths by throwing them to the dogs, crucifying them, and burning them alive. The Christians were seen as strange by most people in the Roman Empire, especially because they were monotheists, but this was too much for the Romans. 
Sympathy for Christianity grew while Nero's popularity fell even further, especially after he began construction on a 100 to 300 acre palace complex in the middle of Rome. Yeah, um, you know, it's easy to vilify Nero, and yeah, he should, but the reality here is you have villains all around. All of these people in power, the senators, the emperors, the would-be emperors, prefects, all of these people, this is why there's so much death and destruction in Rome. And uh, I think you're going to see over the next few history segments that what you think might be good, the elimination of Nero Caesar, may end up being not so good. Not so good at all. And we'll just have to wait and see how that works out in future episodes. I'm sure you'll be with us soon. Um, before we get into uh, expert counsel Q&A, uh, let me remind you guys, if you like this show and you want to support it, the number one way you can do that, the best way you can do that, the way that helps out the most is to become a member of the Survival Podcast Members Support Brigade. And remember, we're not like PBS. It's not a donation. You're not going to you know, send me a hundred bucks and I'll send you a shopping bag that costs us a dollar. I don't I don't do things that way. I, I put together a program over eight years ago now that, that became the main way that we, we make this show actually sustainable and make it where I can do it every day for you, and, and that's called the Member Support Brigade. What that does is it gives you discounts on over 70 different companies, the stuff you're probably buying anyway. And the odds are that if you actually just, I'd say once every couple weeks, Go look at all the companies in the benefits section of the MSB. Familiarize yourself with them and what they do. And, you're, and, and they don't, don't just go buy stuff to buy stuff, but when you're like, well, I need seeds. Well, there's four companies that do discounts on seeds. I need plants. Well, we have Bob Wells Nursery that's 10% off you know, trees and plants. Well, I need uh, herbal stuff. Well, we got you know, Western Botanicals. If, you know, I need to do, uh, uh, get, get some uh, uh, Mylar bags to package up my food. Okay, well, we got you know, ready-made resources and safe castle. Both have those and have you know, discount opportunities for you. And if you just do that, and if you keep track of it, I promise you, there is no way in which you will not end up profitable by being an MSB member. You will get more money back than you put in consistently at $50 a year. So check it out if you're not a member yet. And remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, and first responders, EMTs, paramedics, all that stuff, active duty or prior service. I do give you a discount uh, if you sign up as an MSB member. Just email me before you sign up uh, with uh, MSB discount in the subject line. And uh, tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I'll send a discount code back to you. Remember, do that before, not after you sign up, because after you sign up, I can't fix it. I can't change it. It just doesn't work that way. Anyway, with that, um, I've got a question hey, for everyone, Nick, Ferguson Nick Ferguson on setting up a MISSystem. Here to answer another question Nick, from the TSB audience. This time it's about plant propagation, specifically what kind of gear you need for a mist system to automatically water seedling trays. Well, I use a Galcon 8056S. Uh, that's an AC6S six-station indoor irrigation and propagation controller. And right now on Amazon, it's 76 bucks. And that's the controller I use for now. And they have an almost identical Galcon 8006. And that's, I think, 63 or 64 bucks. I don't really know exactly what the difference between the two is, but they're both six-station 
indoor irrigation and propagation controllers. And those controllers are specifically propagation controllers, and what makes them different is that you can program them to operate in seconds. So they can op, you know, turn on, turn a solenoid on for three or four seconds or whatever, or you know, 67 seconds, whatever you want. And both of those are six station controllers, which means you can set six different programs for six different control valves. And one program can be set to water once a week on Saturday at 4 a.m. for three hours, for instance. And another program on the same controller can control a different valve. And let's say it would start every day, starting at noon. And it'd come on for 30 seconds and it'd cycle every 30 minutes and maybe another program can be set for a mist bench where it comes on at let's say 8 a.m turns on for nine seconds then turns off for nine minutes and repeats that cycle until 9 p.m that night it's very versatile allows you to get a lot of utility from one controller now you'll want an inline filter for any small orifice emitters like mist heads so if you're setting up a seedling irrigation bench, then I'd go with mist heads because they produce a fine mist that won't push seeds or soil around. And you'll also need one solenoid control valve for every unique irrigation use or area. So to recap, you'll need the controller, a solenoid valve, and an inline filter to remove sediment and protect the mist heads. Around 50 to 20... Um, Microns should be sufficient. 20 is good. 50, you might still get some issues. As always, that was a quick overview, and now I'm going to get into the details. So before when I said you need one solenoid control valve for every irrigation zone, by that I mean, let's say you have your seedling bench where you need to automatically keep a ton of seedling flats moist. You'll need at least one valve for that zone. And if you have potted trees with bubblers to keep them watered, you'll need one valve for that zone because it's a different program. It's a different interval. And if you also want to automate irrigating some garden beds, you'll need another valve for every one of those garden bed zones. And I have no idea what the scale you're talking about, but for most smaller applications like in a greenhouse... You should need something around a three-quarter inch supply line. Larger irrigation zones like for a whole garden or for irrigating a whole hoop house or high tunnel, you probably want a larger supply line and hence a larger solenoid valve to control the water going to it. So size the solenoid valve for whatever size water line you're using. They sell them in all sorts of threaded sizes. But I'll just assume it's a more conventional application. You just need a mist bed zone, a ceiling tray watering zone, and maybe one more zone for something else. And that's three zones in this made-up scenario, which needs three of the solenoid control valves. And as long as you aren't trying to irrigate a whole 98-foot high tunnel, you should be fine just using three-quarter-inch valves for all of those, which is handy because most of those affordable whole-house filter canisters are threaded for three-quarter-inch fittings. Now... To set up your system, first hook up all of your plumbing with a shutoff valve on your supply line. Then you'll mount your filter and then the manifold that all your solenoid valves will branch off of. If you're using something like a 50 micron reusable metal spin down filter, which I suggest, that one would go first on the main line before your manifold. 
And then you'd probably want to add another plastic canister filter with a 20 micron filter element on any direct line to something like mist heads. So let's say you had, you know, those three uh, different zones. If you only had one of those zones feeding mist heads, then you'd only need one of those filter canisters at 20 microns for the mist head zone. If the other zones were like going to sprinkler heads for a garden or, uh, you know, subsurface irrigation to your garden or whatever, then you wouldn't need that uh, 20 micron filter element. And the reason why I say that is the less filtering you can get away with, the less filters you're going to have to buy as replacements, which is a really nice thing. So always try and just, you know, hammer down on only filtering the water that you need to filter. Don't filter all of it unless you need to. But that 20 micron filter element on any direct line to the mist heads will help ensure that none of those mist heads get clogged with sediment because, you know, once they're clogged, you almost always have to just replace them because the orifice is so small, it's just almost impossible to get stuff out of there unless you're using really high-powered water pressure or sometimes compressed air, and even then, sometimes it doesn't blow all the junk out. So make sure you put a filter on any lines going to mist heads. And then you'll need to hook up the controller and mount it somewhere it'll stay dry and out of the weather. These controllers are for indoor use. They are not weather-protected. They have more expensive ones that are sealed they have a gasket and are waterproof they're sealed against weather so if you need one that's sealed against weather you're going to be shelling out 130 150 bucks but if you can just provide it some protection put a box around it or something to keep it protected from weather then you can get away with a much cheaper controller so you mount that somewhere it'll stay dry out of the weather um follow the instructions in the manual to program it to whatever interval and duration you want your system to irrigate for both of those things are ac uh irrigation controllers you'll have to unplug the whole thing and connect your controller to the leads coming from your solenoid valve if you don't you're going to get zapped so be safe if you need extra length you'll need to buy some irrigation valve wire rated for direct burial. And you can get that like, uh, you can get that on Amazon. Almost everything that I'm going to talk about today, you can get on Amazon or your local hardware store. So get all that hooked up according to the instructions on the packages. And now your solenoid will be set up. And this may sound a little ambiguous because it is. I'm trying to avoid getting super in depth here, both because I don't have the time to, I can't really give good instructions on how and what to wire up without visuals. So I'm just telling you the broad strokes and you'll have to follow the directions of the manufacturers to hook it all up correctly. And please, again, use good safety protocol when working around electricity. I don't want you to get dead. Um, so now that the valve is hooked up, go ahead and check to see if everything works, assuming it all does and there are no leaks, then you'll want to dial in your interval and duration. The interval is the time in between actions and the duration is the amount of time that each action is on for. So if you want your valve to open up and water to come out of whatever emitters you have for 30 seconds, 30 seconds would be the duration and your interval would be the time in between every 30 second burst. So if it's 30 seconds every 10 minutes, then 
you can set it to do that. And you might want to come on, I don't know, every hour for 30 seconds or maybe every three hours for two minutes. Whatever you determine is best for your needs and the plants that you're dealing with, just dial that program down specifically for that solenoid. It's going to take some trial and error to figure out what you need and what will work best. So I hope that helps out and wasn't too scatterbrained to be useful. It's a ton of information to try and jam into one short answer, but I hope it's enough to get you moving in the right direction. As the year goes by, I'll be teaching seasonally appropriate propagation techniques and methods, including setting up a mist system like you're wanting to do. And all those videos will go up to my Patreon supporters, so be looking for those videos around January when I'll be starting my vegetable seedlings. So if you want to see detailed videos on how to do this stuff, sign up over there to make sure you don't miss out. Just check the rewards tiers to make sure you're signed up at the right level to get first access to the course-level content like plant propagation. You can find that page over at patreon.com forward slash homegrown liberty and i just started with a series of videos touring the family property where i live so if that's of interest to you definitely check it out and for links to all the products i suggest or have used in the past because it's like 20 or 30 of them it's too many for me to get all done this morning and get it to jack i'll have a blog post over at homegrownliberty.com published in the next day or two with affiliate links to all of the components you could so you can add them all to your Amazon cart and have them delivered to your door, and you don't have to worry about and wonder if you're getting the right thing. So thanks for the great questions, guys. Keep them coming. To learn more about me and for tons of free, helpful information, check out my blog over at homegrownliberty.com. And to support my new venture into video education, head over to patreon.com forward slash homegrownliberty to sign up and get some great rewards. I'm Nick Ferguson. Do good things. Well, let me tell you something, folks. The value of the information you got right there, and Nick does have a link that he sent me with all of the components, um, is astronomical. If you want to just have a little backyard nursery, you can make thousands of dollars a year doing exactly what he just told you how to do. Uh, the other thing that you can do is if you have a sizable property and you want to plant lots of stuff, you can save thousands and thousands of dollars just by putting one of these systems together. One 4 by 8 system can make thousands of plants a year, depending on what you're making, up to eight, nine, ten thousand plants a year out of one 4 by 8 system. Two of them, you can, you can turn you know a fairly sizable piece of property into a forest in a couple of years. Or you can make money to buy the things that you need. I mean, this is an incredibly valuable uh, system. And it can be set up very, very easily and quickly. And once you do that, you have the ability to basically, I, I consider it like printing money. So do consider uh, setting one of these up. And again, there's a link in the show notes today where you can learn how to get all of these components that Nick mentioned to you on how to put this system together. Next up, I have a question for Chef Keith on cookware. Keith, take it away. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with TastyEducation.com. Wanted to address Sean's question about cookware. First things first, do not place any cookware or knives, for that matter, in the dishwasher. That is the fastest way to destroy your knives and your cookware. Now, I'll give uh, a quick example. I used to own one of those Italian mocha pots, and I believe that is stainless steel. And my wife decided to put it in the dishwasher one time, and it looked horrible after one trip in the dishwasher. It was completely, I don't know what you call it. I'm not a metal expert, but it was fouled up very, very well after that. 
So uh, that's just one quick example. And I often see people put their expensive cookware and knives in the dishwasher. And it's just uh, just a fast way to owning garbage. So when you're dealing particularly with cutlery, you want to wash it when you're done using it. And uh, I just wash it with soap and water. If there was any raw meat, maybe a drop of bleach or just some hot water and plenty of soap is usually enough. And then those are uh, set to air dry or they're dried with a towel and put away in their proper place. And that is not a pile of junk in a drawer where you toss your knives. So just to cover that quickly now, um, Sean, your question is a good one. And there's always the issue if you're going to go with nonstick cookware. Um, do you trust the coating? Because when you're using saute pans, as you well know, you're dealing with high heat and often um, the time from the pan going from room temperature to blasting hot is pretty short. And it really doesn't matter what kind of pan you're using. That is, you know, extreme stress on the pan. So I definitely stay away from the really inexpensive um non-stick coatings and you know I've, I've always been slightly distrustful of them in general currently what i use is a brand called swiss diamond and i met with their ceo in charlotte north carolina i don't know maybe three or four months ago and got a feel for exactly how this stuff is manufactured it's made in switzerland and i learned all about the coatings you know why his is stable and uh, after using it, I feel pretty comfortable with it, but it's still a piece of cookware with a coating on it. So if you abuse it with the wrong utensils, if you take it and put it, you know, from room temperature to blasting high heat, you know, those type of things are definitely going to wear out just about anything quickly. So I tend to take a little care with that, but that's a brand that... Uh, I feel rather comfortable with. I use, um, I probably have over a dozen pieces and it works very well. It's very easy to clean up. One of my new favorite things is cooking rice in my Swiss diamond pots because normally if you cook rice in a standard, you know, stainless steel pot, you're left kind of scrubbing out stuck on rice, um, invariably every time. But when you use the nonstick, it's just a very simple wipeout. So um, that's something that I, I really dig. Also, I'm going to mention a brand to you where I've also met and know the CEO and creator. Um, it's a dude named Rich. He's in New Jersey, and his company is called Extrema. Uh, or Extrema is the name of the pan. You'll find it at ceramicore.com. And this is ceramic cookware. And what I like about this company is the gentleman spent 20 years or so with DuPont Corning when they were making ceramic. They no longer make ceramic. If you see any of that stuff, it's usually stoneware because the plant in the United States has been closed down. But this guy had a lot of experience with this type of cookware, and um, he designed and sourced and you know made the molds, you name it, for his Extrema cookware. And he works with um, one firm, Overseas, I'm not sure if it's China or Taiwan, but he's invested in the equipment. So uh, he's there three or four times a year. So he follows his process from start to finish. And uh, they do have an excellent product. So if you're concerned about 
you know, chemicals and all that, you want to look into this Extrema, and that's with an X. So X-T-R-E-M-A, Extrema Cookware, Ceramicor.com. Uh, I had a dinner with that gentleman probably seven years ago in uh, New Jersey at a steakhouse and we broke bread and I got a good feeling for him and the quality of his products and I've used them extensively. So, um, I can, I can say with certainty those are good. So Sean, I hope those, um, options are good for you. And both of those brands will give you, I don't know, an eight inch skillet probably in the 40 to $70 range. So maybe a tiny bit above your stated budget, but not crazy. So I hope that helps. And TSPers, I want to encourage you all to visit Food Storage Feast where you'll learn how to cook with your food stores. And I am offering a special uh, coupon. I only created 100 of these, so if you're interested, go and get it quickly. Now, um, MSB members get $70 off, but I'm giving you this um, limited coupon for TSPers. And the coupon code, this is what you would use at checkout. So if you decide to get the course when you're checking out, use TSP30. That will save you $30 off the course um, cost. So go ahead and take advantage of that. And I hope everybody has a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in to TSP and uh, call in some more questions. Later. You know, great stuff from Keith. And, and remember, what started this whole thing is a guy's got a wife that wants to shove all the cookware into the dishwasher no matter what he does or says. And, I, you know, I don't really know how to solve that problem. Other, I don't know how to shock collar and see if he can get away with it. No, seriously, I mean, you know, I kind of said my piece on this last week, but I just want to reinforce something about my opinion on cookware anymore. Like I said, there are some specialty things. I think it's good to have a, a good, you know, just a good quality, like a T-file nonstick pan. For if you're making eggs or something, you're not using real high temperatures, you can pull that out, use the appropriate thing uh, on it. And it does make your life easier, you know. But I've gone all cast in carbon steel. All cast iron and carbon steel. Man, it, you know, you talk about having to take care of stuff and, it, you know, it's still going to wear out, whatever. And you can't wear out one of these things. And it is not hard to take care of at all. If you wash these pans, as soon as you're done cooking, everything just comes out of them easily. A little coating of oil, a little heat to make sure they're dried off, and they'll last longer than you and me put together. Your grandkids will have your cookware. Unless they come up with something truly, you know, lifelong and better. And in my opinion, they haven't yet. So that's, that's just my reinforcement on that. And please, ladies out there, or, or guys, I don't care who you are, stop putting a freaking cookware in a dadgone dishwasher. One more time, don't do it. It's okay. You don't need to scrub it. Stop using abrasive stuffs on it. Stop using soap on it. Water, and if you need to get some stuck on stuff out, get a ringer. It's a little tool. You can get a little, little tool that's made out of chain mail, and it cleans it. And if you need any more help, throw some coarse freaking salt on it, scrub it with warm water, dry it off, and leave it the hell alone, and your great-grandkids will have the damn thing. That's all i got to say, man. Next, I have an update for you from Paul Wheaton out of the wilds of Montana on some stuff they're doing up there with rocking mass heaters. Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com with another update from Wheaton Laboratories. Um, today, I've got with me... Josiah Wallingford. Of... Permethos. 
Damn right. And uh, we're here at the uh, the Rocket Mass Heater Workshop Jamboree, uh, which is happening at our place right now. I think we've got uh, five days left. Uh, it ends on Tuesday. Yep. Um, and so part three is about to begin on Saturday. Uh, imagine none of your listeners are going to be able to make it. But we'll tell you what we've already built um, because it's a three-part workshop jamboree. And, and for each part, there's multiple things happening at once. So people won't get bored with just one build. They can wander around to all of them. And they tend to hook up with their favorite innovator. We've got our, we've got the top innovators in the world in rocket mass heater technology here right now. Great guys. Yeah. Um, yeah, very exciting talking to these guys. Oh yeah, these these people are very brilliant. Um, it's been amazing to just see them debate with each other about a bunch of stuff. But let's move on to what's actually been built so far. And now um, you were uh, looking at the one that's the the rocket mass heater in that little red cabin, which I believe is being called the Cyclone, and that's a totally different design. Yeah, it looks like a uh, cabin almost, like a <laughs> super tall cabin. Yeah, that kind of sits. And this is a tiny space. Have you ever stayed in the Red Cabin? I haven't stayed in there, but I've been in there quite a bit. Yeah. Um, I was in the, the Love Shack, which we'll talk about later. But uh, it was very warm. Yeah, when I was in there, they were testing. They were putting testing heat everywhere they could. Right. And, and they had a, uh, a glass door on it, which was a pot pan. Yeah. Pot. There was, they've actually been fabricating something in our metal shop here uh, for quite a while. Um, but I think they're going to ditch that and just stick with that little glass lid. It's um, cool. It was an interesting way of doing it. But um, a very different – it was for a tiny house. I mean, this space is tinier than a tiny house. I think it's, it's – Probably uh, the, one of the smallest rocket masses I've seen. And it, yeah. and it was kicking out heat. It was and it nice definitely has a mass. In fact, it has – most rocket mass heaters have a barrel or something shaped like a barrel. Yeah. And that's for the instant heat. This has no instant heat. It's all long-term heat. Now, it snowed last night, and Ernie was saying it was almost 60 in there in the morning. Yeah. From yeah. Morning. And, that's, and the fire had probably been out for, you know, oh, 10 hours, oh, yeah. you yeah. know. So um, – but that one's being called the Cyclone, and it's an extremely different rocket mass heater design uh, using uh, we're seeing a lot this year in stratification chambers. The stratification chamber is the big thing. <laughs> you know, for all your fashion models out there, <laughs> when you go out on you walk that runway with your rocket mass heater, make sure you have a stratification chamber, or you'll be booed off the the, <laughs> the runway. All right, the, the next one is is right outside the red cabin. Uh, we built a big hugel culture bed. And there's been a lot of interest in having uh, greenhouse rocket mass heaters. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, especially when we start, we were just talking about how you could get your starters going instead oh. of starting them in the house, where they're just going to get totally shocked when you bring them out. Right. You start them there. So when you start your seeds indoors, they eventually have to be hardened off, and so this would be a way of not having to ever harden them off. Yeah. And so. Um, uh, but beyond that, you can also it'll be an alternative to a greenhouse. Or, more importantly, what most people think of is, how are they going to do their heat in their greenhouse? It has to be a wet, tolerant rocket mass heater, and that's what was demonstrated there. Great frost mitigation, too, if you're not going to have it in a greenhouse. Yeah, true. So if you're just on the edge of being able to grow your favorite something or another, then on the coldest day, you can fire up this rocket mass heater that's embedded in this Google culture. But it's massive. That's got to be the biggest rocket mass heater I've ever seen. Right, because we just (laughs) pour, and we're going to make it bigger, too. We're going to dump more uh, dirt on it. Okay, um, uh, you wanted us to point out in this quick uh, update about the two rocket hot water heaters that were created during the appropriate technology course this year. Well, they're getting so much use. It's like the most used rocket masses on the property, I think, as far as the people in the event. True, because you use them in the summertime, too. Yeah. Hot water. 
So we've got one that's next to the dishwashing station, which is a vertical tank hot water heater. And then we've got one next to the shower Shower. shack, which is a horizontal tank hot water heater. And both of them are rocket powered. They take just a couple of sticks and you've got very hot water. Yeah, you heat it, you, you start the fire, go take a dump. And then by the time you're done, you're ready for a shower. <laughs> and they each hold, I think, I, I, I'm not sure, but I think they each have a 55-gallon drum holding water on the yep. inside. So you've got a 55-gallon tank there. Um, and then there, I, I showed you just a little while ago uh, the Mini Mouse rocket mass heater, which is located up in the Love Shack. And you stayed in the Love Shack before. but It would um, have been nice to have that in there when I stayed in there. Because we were, <laughs> that was like April, yeah, it May. Was early spring. It was late spring. Yeah, it was April. Still cold. It was April. snow. There was still snow. There was snow on the ground. Yeah. yeah. And so so now there's a heat source in there. We put the Minnie Mouse. And this is uh, Peter Vandenberg's invention. And so it sits in a little corner. And the and the Love Shack's actually smaller than the Red Cabin. And I think I measured it the other day. It's uh, a little over six feet wide on the inside and about 11 feet long on the inside. Yeah, it's nice. You got a back wall. You got extra back wall backing on the back wall to or extra mass mm-hmm. so that you're not heating up the wood. Around the cabin, and uh, it's a nice little area. It's, it's a well-done thing. Uh, they're working on a contraption right now, which uh, converts broken glass into glass tiles. Um, that's right. that's kind of... Because we're in the middle of the Innovators event right now, part two of the Jamboree. Um, and so they're doing this crazy thing was brought up, and a lot of people are very interested in it. And I think next year for the Jamboree, we're going to definitely do at least one Rocket Forge. Cool. Yeah. Um well, the, the temperatures you're getting too, is, that's going to be possible. You're getting extreme temperatures. Oh, we've already done it. Yeah. We've, we've already, uh, dropped some steel into, uh, a standard, uh, rocket engine and got it to white hot and reshaped it. And, in no time. In it like, like 20 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and no bellows, no coal, just, yeah. just wood. Awesome. Found line on the ground. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the cottage rocket mass heater, uh, that's under construction that's right now. That's my favorite. I think that's my favorite. Um, it's just, it's really cool looking, really compact design, and it's something I, you could even do it in a 35 gallon, they're doing it in 55, but you could do it in 35 gallon drums. Right. It's also designed for tiny houses. Exactly. It's going to go into our little wood shop. I was thinking if it, if the 35 might work in the camper, in my camper. Oh, might. I see where you're going. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the idea is, is that it does have a mass in it. But you heat the mass to like 400 degrees, whereas usually we heat the mass to like 120. Right. And so um, it's it, but but it's going to lose its heat pretty fast. So it's not going to hold it for days. It's going to hold it for hours. Um, the double shoe box is being put together as part of the Innovators event. It's a whole different way to have a rocket mass heater engine, um, and it's working. It looks good. And Peter's going to put it into the uh, rocket wood cook stove and oven going into Allerton Abbey starting on Saturday. He seems to be the most excited about this with the results that he's seen from it. He's really oh, excited about I mean, how Peter clean brings it is. a bunch of measuring equipment, and he constantly measures everything. Yeah. And he's the math guy. Um, Skittable Canning Kitchen, uh, that gets started on Saturday. And you've seen the part about the, uh, the like, we've got a big Skittable shed out there. Uh, which still needs its roof, and we're working on it right now. Yeah. And um, but once the roof is on, we're going to start seeing all the bits and bobs going in there for a, a Lorena-style canning kitchens. So that's where it heats the pots on the bottom and the sides. Um, I think that's very exciting, and uh, definitely on skids, that's an awesome idea. And the last project is the alternative to a campfire. We used to have a thing out there called the Ring of Fire. 
Um, and the uh, and basically there would, you would, it had a lot of glass, so you could really see the fire. Peter's new thing has a lot of glass, and you yeah. could see it. Um, but the uh, the ring of fire had a lot of glass, and then it would uh, had a big loop of the exhaust, so it would warm your butt while you're watching all the fire, and you got no smoke in your eyes. Yeah. So, but the thing is, is it turned out to be susceptible to weather, um, and so we've taken that all apart. We're reusing all the parts, and it's going into the um, uh, under the berm shed. Uh, we've picked out a spot, and and so there's going to be a whole new build there of uh, something uh, resembling a ring of fire. But Ernie's got a lot of ideas. He's building something there now. He says he's trying to teach everybody the very standard Cobb build. He, we don't have a Cobb rocket mass heater at base camp, and and right now we're doing a lot of measuring, a lot of litmus tests are being done of uh, all kinds of different properties. Um, and so he feels like we should have a standard Cobb rocket mass heater. So stuff's happening in that space. That would be awesome to have for the barter blankets, the TSP barter blankets. So every event Jack does, he's got the barter blanket. It would be so nice to have one of those in there. So um, and I think that's all of our time. Awesome. Um, so you're here. Does it, I mean, clearly you're excited about some of these builds. I'm yeah. excited about the people, uh, most of all, and that are here, the innovators, and then, yeah, of course, the, the crazy cool things they're building. And maybe we should, next time we do this, we should do a summary of the 10 rocket mass heaters that were already here before the event started. Sounds good to me. All right, Jack, there you go. Thanks so much. Talk to you later. Bye. Good hearing from Paul and Joe. Paul emailed me and said, hey, do you want to come to this giant thing dig we're doing? Uh, he did it like two days before it started. <laughs> like, you got to be out of your mind, Paul. <laughs> I mean, really, two days? I couldn't drive there in two days. Uh, I'd actually love to get up to one of Paul's events sometimes. You have to give me a little more heads up than that. I, You know, I got hunting next weekend, and I got all I got. We got Crypto Gulch coming. Uh, we got that launch coming in a few weeks. We got the Quail Tracker coming on Monday. We got a bunch going on here, but good to hear from Paul and good to hear from Joe too. I'm glad he's continuing to, you know, to really make uh, headway with Perma Ethos, and it, it, it's really gratifying to, for me to see that. For those who maybe haven't been around long enough to know, I was one of the founders of Perma Ethos. We ended up exiting the company, selling our positions out to Joe, and Joe's running that. And you know, Joe was my intern. He came here and lived in my home for seven months, and the whole point of that was to get him to a point where he could run a business of his own. And uh, that's one of the real another one of those really great success stories out of our community, man. So glad to see Joe trucking along with things there. Next up I have a question for a guy we haven't heard from walk. He's been on the road heavily, Charles Sandville, the humble mechanic on an ABS brake issue. And I'll tell you what, not this issue, but Man, I've had so many things with new cars and brake lights coming the hell on and stuff like that. So I'm interested to hear uh, what Charles has to say about this. Hey, everybody. It's Charles from HumbleMechanic.com taking your car-related questions. This one comes from Hatch, and it's about ABS. It's got a 2002 Nissan Frontier with about 200K on it. And for the last couple of years, the ABS has been randomly triggering. could be sitting at a light or making a turn, and you'll feel that pedal rumble of the ABS activating. This seems to be happening more when it's hot, especially summertime in Texas. Well, if it's going to be hot, summertime in Texas definitely fits the bill. After talking to the local mechanic, they didn't really have any strategy to move forward on how to get this car fixed. The big concerns, are you about to lose all of your brakes altogether, or are they going to randomly lock up on you and cause a very bad day? Now, Hatch did do an abrupt panic stop on the highway, and the ABS did function, so that's a good thing because the system is working 
when you need it to work. Before we move forward, what we want to do is understand a little bit about ABS systems. I like to break these up into two separate sections. I like to take the anti-lock braking section and call that the electrical side. Then I like to take the hydraulic and mechanical side of the brakes, and I usually just call that the hydraulic side. These systems are technically two separate systems. Manufacturers build in so many redundancies in safety systems like brakes, where if the module completely fails, heck, even if the module is unplugged, the hydraulic side of the brakes will still function properly. Of course, you won't have your anti-lock brake system, but you will still have that hydraulic function that does the stopping of your car almost all the time. So to me, this does feel like an electrical side problem. So here would be the first thing that I would do. I would get a scan tool that I could talk to the ABS module with and make sure that there's no fault codes stored. If there are fault codes stored, that will start to push you in the right direction of your diagnostic path. Perhaps there's a fault for a solenoid, and you'd want to focus on the things that you knew were having an issue first. I have a pretty good feeling, though, if you were to pull faults on this ABS module, you'd probably find no faults. It may think that it's actually functioning properly. But that's going to be step number one. Next, what I would do is I would find someone to give me a hand and do the following test. I would start the car. I would have my friends sit in the driver's seat, put the car in drive with their foot on the brake, and tell them, do not take your foot off this brake at all. Then I would make them set the parking brake just in case they slip, pop the hood, go into the engine compartment. Now, your car's going to be running, so be really careful here if you're wearing baggy clothes, you have long hair or, you know, a beard like me, uh, do not have your face, head, or clothes anywhere near any rotating parts. We want to be extra careful here. With the car running, with it in drive, with my buddy's foot on the brake and the parking brake on, I would take something like a small hammer or maybe an extension and just tap a little bit on the ABS module. If in that tapping you find that the ABS module starts to activate, you probably found your problem to be some sort of internal issue with the ABS module. Perhaps a weak connection, perhaps a loose connection, a short, some kind of issue inside of the module. It's not a guarantee for 100% that the module failure is what's going on, but if you gently tap on that module and it starts activating, you definitely have a problem with it. If I did that and I found nothing, my next step would be to move to inspect the wiring. Now for this, you want to have the car off, key out. You can even disconnect the battery if it'll make you feel better. I don't think you need to, but it's definitely not a problem to do that. And I would inspect the wiring. Typically, from my experience, what I've found with ABS module failure, usually when it's a wiring issue, it's the ground wire for the pump. That's a pretty high current pump and it needs a good quality ground. Start off doing a visual inspection. If you have a multimeter, you can do a resistance check from a known good ground, say at the battery, to the ground of the pump. That works okay. That's a static test. The best way to test that would be with a volt drop test. In that case, you need to test it while the pump's working, which becomes really challenging unless you have some clips and whatnot and can actually put your meter in the car with it hooked up and drive the vehicle to monitor it. Probably not something your average DIYer or even, even good DIYer is going to be able to do, but you can do a simple resistance check with a multimeter and see what the resistance is of the ground circuit. If I didn't find any issue with the ground, I would then move on to the rest of the wiring. 
perhaps a loose pin in the connector. Take a really good look, disconnect the module, take a flashlight, shine it through all the pins on the connector. Look for any dirt, debris, corrosion, bent pins, loose wires. You want to do a full, thorough, thorough visual inspection. And oftentimes, these little micro issues with wiring are really hard to see. So you may want to even grab something like a magnifying glass or use the Zoom app on your phone to zoom in and get a really close look. There's also a couple of easy things we can do that any of us can do to do this inspection on our car. Now, because you said this is happening over the last couple of years, I really don't think you're gonna find one of these issues to be a problem, but it's something to definitely look at. Look at your tires. Are your tires the correct size for the vehicle? Do your tires match in size all the way around the car? Do you have bigger tires in the front than you do in the rear? That can cause ABS issues. It can also cause traction control issues. You know, it just sort of dawned on me, you really need to make sure this is an ABS problem not a traction control problem. There are certain situations where the two can kind of behave similar depending on what's going on. Now, I know you said this happens sometimes while you're stopped, so I'm not thinking it's tires, but this is something that in 30 seconds you can look at, make sure your tires are all the same size, make sure they're the right tires for the vehicle, make sure that the tread depth is close. They don't have to match exactly down to the 32nd, but if you have tires on the front that are at 132nd and brand new tires in the rear, that can also cause issues with the way your traction control or your ABS behaves because it's basically seeing different wheel speeds front to rear. The computer thinks there's a problem. It's going to intervene in a way that it finds appropriate. We also may be looking at potentially a wheel speed sensor failure. Usually with that kind of failure though, you'll get some kind of warning light on the car, an ABS light, a traction control light, an electronic power control light, some kind of warning, maybe even a check engine light, some kind of warning saying, hey, I'm seeing some kind of discrepancy on the vehicle. You need to get this car plugged into a computer and see what's going on with it. You also mentioned that you took it to a local mechanic. This kind of problem where it's super intermittent and kind of strange, Maybe something you don't want to take to just a general service technician. This is something you may want to look at a Nissan specialty shop or even, yes, even the dreaded dealership. Now, I know there's a lot of hatred towards dealership technicians out there, and I get it. Uh, I, I really do. But there are also a lot of razor sharp dealer techs that have seen a lot of common, common problems or no little tricks and tips to diagnose weird issues like this. So this may be one where you want to actually pay a diagnosis fee and get it looked at by someone that knows that car inside and out, top to bottom, left to right. There's a place for a general service technician. There's a place for a general service quick stop. And then there's a place for the advanced level diagnostic type technician, and this may be one of them. The good thing is, is I don't think you really have to worry about your brakes locking up on you or completely failing again. There are tons of redundancy built into these systems, so I don't think you need to worry about that. But for me, it would probably be worth a hundred bucks at a good Nissan shop to try and figure out what's going on. When I'm reading this question, my gut, like my initial instinct reaction says, this is an ABS module failure or a wiring failure. It could kind of go either way. This may also be one of those where you don't find a definitive problem. You actually just have to kind of roll the dice 
and put the part on that makes the most sense. One of the most challenging things about this type of problem is actually duplicating it in a way that is repeatable and in a way that you can run tests. If you brought this car to me and I test drove it for a week and it never messed up, there's not really anything I can do except what we call drive it through the parts department and just throw parts at the car. If I duplicate it one time for a split second, well, that's not really much different because I can't run any tests in that one split second of the car acting weird. We need to get it to do it multiple times over and over again, which is why I think if you do what I mentioned in the beginning, gently tap on the ABS module, you can probably get even a little bit more tap than just gentle. You're not trying to break it. So don't hit it with like a three pound sledgehammer. You're basically just trying to get its attention while you're tapping on it. Like so many things, when we ask questions about our cars, I typically do not have a definitive answer of it's definitely this part because there's so many variables at play. So many things could be going on with it. This could be anything from a loose ground connection to a loose pin in one of the connectors to a failing ABS module and pretty much everything in between. So this is a really good question and one of those that, boy, do I wish I could jump behind the wheel of this car and get my hands on it and have a crack at diagnosing it. I always enjoy these weird kind of problems. They're the ones that you fight and fight and fight and then have that super victory at the end of actually fixing what's going on. So guys, keep the car questions coming. I know I've been on a little bit of a hiatus for a while. The summer travel season was absolutely bonkers this year. I think I only have two more trips planned for the year, so life might start to normalize just a little bit. I can hop back into the regular TSP rotation. Jack, TSP, thank you guys so much for having me on the Expert Council. Keep the car questions coming. Have an awesome weekend, and I'll talk to you guys again soon. Well, hopefully that'll help the guy out. I mean, I... Am I the only one that just kind of really wishes cars were the way they were in the 60s still? You know, I worked on cars that were made in the 60s and the 70s and 80s as a kid, and it was easy. Um, the reality of those cars are built better today. You see a lot less of them on the side of the road now than you used to. That, that's the reality. But they're harder to work on, and they have these dadgone gremlins sometimes. Too much technology. I remember... The first car I ever bought was a 75 Grand Prix with a 455 Rochester Quadrajet four-mile carburetor sitting on top of it, low-lead sled, as they used to call it. Um, but I looked at a bunch of stuff when I was trying to you know, get money together and buy a car, and I remember I looked at this Dodge. I don't know when, the, what the hell year this thing was. And I don't know what model it was, but it was black. It looked like something you drive, like like maybe the Adams family would drive or something. It was a huge car, and uh, it had a massive hood. And I remember I just didn't have enough money to buy it. I really wanted to. And I remember popping the hood. And, I mean, like, you could have put a whole family, you know, to smuggle across the border under this hood. That's how big this hood was. And I opened the hood, and I look in there, and there's a straight-eight motor. I mean, it's like longer than your leg. Eight, eight smart plugs right there at the top. You could have changed the plugs in that, that car in like five minutes flat when you needed the plugs. There's a distributor, distributor cap, plug wires. There was a fan. There was a, uh, a radiator. There was an alternator. There was a battery. There was a belt for the water pump. And... That was it. There was literally nothing else underneath the hood of this thing. And I appreciate new vehicles, but I often wonder, would it be possible to use the best modern manufacturing techniques 
and go back to, to something that simplified. And I think the one thing that prevents it, emissions. That's the one thing that prevents it in our, in our modern world. But in the end, I think you know we might have a lot, lot more simplified life. Instead, I think what we're headed for is electric vehicles. Uh, faster than most people would want to believe, though. I've, I've heard something recently that makes me wonder how that's all going to work because the people that work in the electrical power industry that generate the electricity are like, yeah, no, no, no. If, if, you know, like if, if half of America had an, a plug-in electric car right now and came home tonight for the first time and plugged it into the grid, whoa, there's not enough power. There's not enough, enough electricity. So it'll be interesting to see how that transition happens because, boy, the winds of change are headed for it. And there's a lot to it from a standpoint of quality, really. I mean, it, an electric vehicle, if you can make it work, is ideal compared to a gas vehicle, not just to save the planet or some shit like that. Just from a standpoint of, you know, if I have to explain it, you won't understand. I don't have time to today anyway. But anyway, let's move on. I got a question now for uh, Patrick Rohrman of MT Knives on uh, making your own knives and heat treating when you don't have everything you need to do the heat treating yourself. Patrick, take it away. Hey, guys, this is Patrick Rohrman with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert uh, counsel question of the week. Today's question comes from R. DeWeese. I hope I said that right. He's an MSB member in South Carolina. His question is, Jack, I listened to Friday's show today, and you said you needed questions for Patrick, so here they are. Patrick, can I make a blade from 1080 or 1095 steel and send it to someone for heat treating, hardening, and tempering for a knife? I've made a few knives from pre-made blanks and want to step up my game, but I don't have the money for, for the equipment. I'd love to have temperature-controlled kiln, tank of various fluids, ATF, peanut butter oil, etc., I have neither the money nor the space to take on a new hobby. But I'm good with a file and would love to shape a blade of my own creation. However, once I get the steel shaped, in order to make it usable, I need to have it heat treated and tempered. What would you suggest? Is it better to have a knife maker do this? Or is any heat treating service sufficient? Thanks. Well, knife making is a lot like cooking. And... Just like if you have somebody who's real a real skilled chef, he can make a pretty amazing meal with less than perfect ingredients. And you can have somebody who's a pretty lousy chef tear up a perfectly good steak. Knife making is no different. You can start out with premium steel and quality material and have it all ruined by somebody that doesn't know what they're doing. Or you can uh, have some mediocre steel and have somebody that's really proficient in what they do and turn out a pretty stellar blade. So there's a lot of uh, contention about what's the best steel and what's the best heat treating methods. But what I'd say to you is, uh, you know, a lot of makers start out with some 1095 or some 5160. Uh, one of the big reasons for this is, is because it's a pretty forgiving steel. The heat treating process doesn't have to be, you know, overly crazy, and you're still going to end up with a pretty good blade. Um, the real question is, is what do you expect? What do you want out of a knife that you make? 
when you pour all your sweat and time into that blade, do you want the best possible cutting edge you can have? Or are you okay with just uh, a mediocre blade that is going to work fine for the task that you're going to throw at it? You know, are you making a blade that you're just going to go out there and uh, use and abuse? And, you know, are you making something that you want to uh, just show your friends and have something that you made? And how much money, you know, budget do you have? Are you looking for the most affordable route or are you just looking to have the best blade that you possibly could have? So these are all questions that you have to ask yourself. Um, I would say if you want the best overall performing blade, you need to find somebody who's very reputable in heat treating and somebody that you can trust. I tell people all the time that the number one quality or skill that a knife maker needs to have, or for that matter, anybody you do business with, probably the most important thing that that person have is integrity. Because when that chef drops your steak on the floor and nobody saw, is he going to pick it up and throw it in the skillet? You know, rinse it. Or is he going to pick it up and rinse it off and throw it in the skillet? Or is he just going to go get a new one and serve you that. So uh, that's the thing is somebody with integrity is going to make sure to do right by you no matter what. And typically somebody that's been in business for a long time has uh, earned a reputation of somebody that can be trusted, has integrity. And uh, the first name that comes to my mind when it comes to heat treating is Peter's Heat Treating. They uh, have been in business for a long time. They have a good name built for themselves, and they're trusted by the knife community. So that might be an avenue you might look into. I'm not sure if they will treat um, 1095 or 1080, but it doesn't hurt to check. So, And also, it doesn't hurt to find a local knife maker and uh, have them heat treat it if you're okay with uh not personally not not possibly not having the absolute perfection of heat treating process done on your blade so i hope this answers your question if anybody else has a question feel free to shoot them to me once again this has been patrick with mt knives reminding you to stay beyond razor sharp have a great day all right, uh, good stuff from Patrick. Next up, I have a question in trying to avoid losses in inside 401k plans um, when they've taken away what you would call a cash equivalency uh, option within your 401k. With that, hey, uh, John, man, take it away. Hey, TSP listeners, today our financial question comes from James, and James is asking, what are my options for avoiding a financial loss in my 401k plan during a recession? Now, James is asking this question because as he looks at his new 401k plan at work, there isn't any type of traditional money market fund in there or what he could necessarily discern as a cash equivalent fund. I wanted to answer James's question because this is a common concern as we see money market funds pretty much disappear from all traditional 401k plans. What's really confusing to people is that money market funds are alive and well and very much available in your retail brokerage account. 
So if you have an account with Schwab or E-Trade or Edward Jones, more than likely there's a money market fund and it's probably even a money market fund that may be guaranteed with FDIC insurance and there doesn't seem to be any problem with its availability. And so people are saying, well, why can I get it at my brokerage account, but I can't find it in my 401k plan at work? And it all comes down to the arbitrary heavy hand of government regulation. And the whole process frustrates me so badly that I really can't easily explain it in the short period of time that I have during this segment. But let me just say this. There's been a war on money market funds for a number of reasons and for a number of decades. A lot of people, both in and out of the government, would like to see that option taken away from you as a private individual investor. And so what they've done since the financial crisis, they've used that as an opportunity to go in and regulate money market funds, but they're only regulating that product within the guise of a 401k plan. And this is what frustrates me about the whole system is because if money market funds are so unstable and need to be regulated in 401k plans, then why are they allowed to exist outside of 401k plans? It's mind-boggling. It's like all the arbitrary rule we see in the government. And I know I'm preaching to the choir with the TSP audience. It makes no more sense than the other rules that you know govern things like gun control. Why can you have a 10-round magazine, but a 12-round magazine might be illegal? And so before I get too frustrated, I'm not going to go into the reasons or the rationale behind why we have this war on money market funds and all the added legislation. I'm simply going to tell James, these are the three options you're going to have for a cash equivalent fund within a 401k plan. Option one, you may still have a money market fund because they haven't been outlawed. As of late, they've just become very regulated and very restrictive, and most companies don't want to deal with those restrictions, and so they're just eliminating them. But you, you may have an option, so that could be number one. Number two is that you probably have, and I know in James's case you do have, a U.S. Treasury bond fund. And in some cases, it may even be called a U.S. government money market fund. And that's because, in a sense, it is nothing more than the old traditional money market fund, but instead of using and relying on ultra-short-term commercial paper or commercial debt, these government bond money market funds can only invest in U.S. government debt. And for the most part, it's very short-term government debt, so it's probably invested in like 90-day T-bills. And the third option that I'm aware of for a cash equivalent within a 401k plan is what's being marketed as stable value funds, or you may hear them called guaranteed retirement funds or guaranteed value funds. And they're not a bad deal. They're generally going to pay a higher interest rate. I've seen these paying interest rates of anywhere from, say, 1% to maybe 2.5%, which is quite a bit more than you're going to get in a money market fund. But the problem I have, and that's not the right word to use, the concern I have is that these funds are being marketed as stable value or guaranteed value, guaranteed principle. And the reason that concerns me is from a purely theoretical standpoint, they're no more guaranteed value than the old traditional money market fund was before all those heavy regulations were imposed on the money market funds. The money market funds was never actually guaranteed to have a net asset value of $1. There was always the possibility that the value could fluctuate based on the commercial debt that it was invested in. This very short-term, ultra-liquid corporate paper. It's called corporate paper. It's corporate debt, short-term corporate debt. And while it could always vary, 
And during times of financial crisis, like in 2008, there were one or two funds which broke the buck, meaning that their value temporarily did drop down below a dollar in net asset value. And while that could occur, and while it did occur in some limited situations, generally, this was a self-regulated industry standard where companies that provided money market funds did their best to preserve that $1 net asset value because they didn't want to be known as defaulting or having their investors lose money. And so while it wasn't necessarily 100% guaranteed, in reality, in practice, de facto, it was guaranteed. And it did work out, and it's worked out for the last, I don't know, 75 years that traditional money market funds have been in business. And so while I don't necessarily have a problem with these stable value funds, what does bother me is that there's nothing really underwriting the stability of these funds any more than the stability of the institutions that backed up the original money market funds. These stable value funds are really hybrid products based on debt and based on an insurance instrument. And so the debt could be government treasuries that are 100% backed up by the federal government. But on the other hand, it doesn't have to be. That debt could be the junkiest of all corporate junk bonds. Doesn't necessarily have to be all investment grade. And so you still have risk of corporate debt, just like you had risk of corporate debt backing up the viability of money market funds. And then to further complicate things, the other side of these stable value funds is that they're an insurance product. And so the value of your insurance product is only as good as the value of that company. And I'm not trying to imply here that insurance companies are bad. I'm just saying that they are not necessarily any more inherently stable than the old companies that stood behind the traditional money market fund. And in some cases, you may find they're exactly the same company. And so my concern is not that stable value funds are unreliable. In fact, I wish I had a lot of those options when I'm dealing with a private broker because I would probably use them. You know, if I had a stable value fund available to me from a company like Vanguard or Fidelity and they were paying me one or one and a half percent interest, I would probably take that over a traditional money market fund that was only paying 10 basis points interest. So what I think you as the individual investor have to be concerned with is who is standing behind and backing up the value of that stable value fund. Are the bonds that are invested in it, are they high quality investment grade bonds and are the insurance instruments that, back, that are backing it up, are they underwritten by a very high quality insurance company? Well, I think as an individual investor, it's very hard for you to figure that out. The other concern is that these products are very complicated they're paying a higher interest rate, and so they probably will come with additional restrictions that were not on traditional money market funds. And what I mean by those restrictions is longer holding periods or redemption fees, things of that nature. And if they're not imposed now, maybe they will be once all the money market funds have been regulated out of existence. And then these stable value funds will be able to increase their restrictions and their fees at that point. That's what concerns me. James, I meandered down a long, convoluted path to answer your question. But the bottom line is, if you don't have a money market fund, look for the short-term government bond fund or look for the stable value fund. But make sure you read the fine print and you know what the fees associated with it are and how long of a time frame you have to remain in that investment choice. Well, James, thanks for the question. 
For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Let me just add in why I think all of this was done. It forced more money into the stock market, and it forced more money into government debt instruments. That's why this was done. And I, I covered this, oh, God, I guess I first started talking about this eight years ago at least, uh, the, the removal of, of cash options from 401Ks was done systematically. Uh, it, it actually started before the uh, financial crisis of 2008, 2009, but it really ramped up thereafter, and they were doing it to protect you. Um, if you think about it, if you remove that option and then you replace it with U.S. government bonds, stable value funds, things like that, um, the stable value fund may have a lot of different assets in it, but like John said, some of it could be junk, some of it could be recycled crap uh, from the Federal Reserve with things like you know quantitative easing, uh, so it gives, you, gives them a place to put that shit. Um, it also is going to have some government uh, government securities in it, and of course the government backed debt stuff they call a government money market or a Federal Reserve money or whatever the hell they Johnson they call it. some bullshit. It's holding freaking bonds is what it is. It's holding U.S. debt instruments, uh, specifically U.S. debt instruments. What that's going to do is make a lot of people just say, well, the hell with it. I'll just put all my money in the stocks anyway. Or when they do have to retreat out of the market, the number one place they're going to go is U.S. government debt, right? when the government would need an influx of capital through their debt instruments. So it's kind of a trap, and it's one of the reasons why my advice on 401Ks is unless they're giving you something like 50 cents on the dollar or better with employer match, don't. Just don't. Just do an IRA and, and and remove these restrictions. These are just this is just one example of the bullshit the government pulls with 401ks and, and other qualifying pension uh, private pension funds. Uh, they they really have no business doing, and they're not really helping you. They're not looking out for you. They're looking out for themselves. Remember, we talked yesterday about smart tarted, and I said a lot of times when you see smart people do stupid things, it's really not. Somebody smart on the other end of the deal has set it up to be that way. And they're smart for themselves, not for you. That's what this is. Anyway, uh, time for our last segment of the day. Stephen Harris on tiny houses, electricity, and the elderly. The hell's that all got to do with each other? Listen to Stephen. You'll find out. Hi, this is Steve Harris. Sorry I've been gone a little while. The uh, CAC team stuff really took up my time, and I wasn't able to answer questions. But I was chatting by email with Jack on a subject because... A listener wrote me an expert question, and he wanted to measure the amount of electricity going to his fifth wheel because his niece or something like that, like, you know, a 20-something, 19, 20-year-old was going to move into it, and they wanted to uh, they wanted to charge her electricity. The trouble is it's a 20-amp circuit, and all the neat little meters are for 15-amp circuits. So, but I did find one, and I suggested, you know, just charge her a flat rate. You know, charge her 300 bucks a month rent, and, and and don't charge her electricity. And, well, they decided to charge her $375 a month plus propane plus electricity. So, oh, well, <laughs> still a bargain. Um, so, this brought me to something I was talking about with Jack, and Jack told me to run with it. Uh, it's something I've done my entire life, and it's, it's kind of underneath the subject of tiny homes and old people. Um, Justin Rhodes, 
of, uh, he's on uh, YouTube. He has a daily vlog. He showed uh, a, a guy who was doing an urban permaculture uh, thing on neighbors' yards. He was just using neighbors' backyards and front yards to grow food, and it looked really nice. The guy was a workaholic and a neat freak. But uh, one of the things he did, he had, like, elderly neighbors, and he went to them and said, hey, can I use part of your yard to grow a garden full of food? And uh, you get, it'll look beautiful, it'll be nice, and you get the first pick. You can have all the food from the garden you could possibly want. And these uh, older retired people and sometimes single elderly people said, yeah, sure, go ahead. So not only was he there and around every day and they could come out and say hi to him, but he was making their yard of grass into something plentiful and he was benefiting off it. I think like, you know, one month in farmer's market uh, in the season, he made like $5,700. He was doing this to like 12 neighbors' yards. Again, workaholic and a neat freak. Um, so if you have a tiny house and you want to move it into someone's property, whether you know the person or not, it might be a very good symbiotic relationship for you to move it onto like some farm property or something, and you're a 100 yards away from their house, and they are elderly or they are retired. Now, let me, and they might not charge you any rent at all. They'll just say, yeah, sure, park it there. But see, let me tell you something that I've been doing since, you know, I was two years old, hanging on to my mother's apron strings. There is a severe problem in this country, going all the way back to the 1970s and 60s, and even before then, of the elderly in America and how we treat them. I saw this firsthand with my wife's mother, who was in a series of nursing homes, and she had money, so she could be in the okay and the nice nursing homes, okay? But uh, we found a lot of, uh, my mother found a lot of old ladies uh, in town when I was a little kid, I'm talking, you know, before I was even two, and they had absolutely nothing to do. I mean, I remember one lady, her name was Mrs. LaBelle, and she was bald. And her biggest decision of the day was, did she want to wear her red, her blonde, or her black wig that day? And she would literally sit by the window all day and just watch the kids go by to school and, you know, the traffic and stuff like that. Well, my mother was into making quilts, and she ran the church bazaar. And she would come by and find these women, and it's like, um, do you know how to sew? Well, of course they knew how to sew. They were 80, 90 years old and it was 1970. Of course they knew how to sew. So she would uh, drop off material and fabric for them. And if they didn't have a sewing machine, she would give them a donated sewing machine. You know, she'd find it at a rummage sale for like five bucks. And the sewing machine guy knew her and he would fix it basically for free. And these people had something to do. They actually had something to put their hands on on a daily basis that kept them busy. And then they would get together. Well, 
long story short is she still runs a quilting group through a church today. It's not a religious organization. It's just a community thing that she does. And uh, it's like her youngest lady is 70. She's 80. Some of the ladies in the group are 90. And if she gives them materials and stuff and they go home and they make the tops to the baby quilts, baby quilts remember and then they come to get together every tuesday and they sew the top with the batting with the backing of the baby's quilts to finish them off now they have given away 27,000 sorry 28,000 baby quilts in 20 years and they give them away for free to needy babies. In fact, we sent some of them down to uh, JoJo, who's doing relief work with us, the CAC team, in the Houston area. And she gave them out. And we got video of it. And the kids just grab hold of this blanket, and they won't let it go. It's theirs. They won't let it go. You can't have it. Nope, it's mine. So anyways... So if you got a tiny house, you might actually look for someone who is elderly and has farm space and uh, put your tiny house there and tell them, like, you want to have a garden uh, and you want to have, like, some rabbits or chickens and, you know, their farm is empty now. And tell them that we want to do this and, you know, and we'll pay you. And if they say, oh, no, no, that's fine, then that's fine. But if not, you know, pay them a couple hundred a month and then, you know, give them eggs and produce. But stop by and check on them every day. Stop in for tea, what we used to call, a lady used to stop by and see my mother for what we called T and P. She'd stop by for tea and have to go pee. So uh, stop by for T and P and say, hello, how's your day? How are you, how are you feeling? You know, Do you need me to pick up any of your medicines at the pharmacy in town when we go in town? And look, we got some butternut squash we harvested and everything. And really, you know, be this person's guardian. Be their friend. I mean, this is one thing you can do to get cheap land, uh, you know, for your tiny home or your tiny house. But, you know, it's going to require time on your part. And it's not you're not doing this to do it because you, it's a duty for your land. You're doing this because you genuinely want to help and contribute to that person. You're not doing it just for land. It's got to be part of yourself. So. Um, Anyways, I forgot what I was going to say. So anyways, this would be a, a good thing uh, to do for finding land. Hang on a second. Okay, I remember what I wanted to say. Well, let's say you don't live in a tiny home. Let's say you got some two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight-year-old, up ten-year-old kids, and you have a golden retriever or a Labrador, and it just loves people. You know, pet me, pet me, pet me, pet me, pet me. Um, it would be a great thing if you had a local retirement home or nursing home that was near you and you went in as like, hey, um, you know, like every other Wednesday, could we stop by, especially on those snowy days where everyone is kept inside in the winter, and could we bring uh, our my kids and our dog with us, you know, and just, you know, the old people get together in the center of the um, nursing home. They have a seating area, a big seating area with TVs and other stuff. And, you know, you just bring in your puppy, your dog, or whatever, and they just get some animal love. I mean, it's very, very therapeutic to pet a dog. 
most places uh, they try to encourage it, but if you wanted to volunteer, you know, and get your children exposed to the wisdom and the knowledge and the life of some older people and how to respect the, you know, the elderly and the ones, those, these people are smarter than we'll ever be, okay? Let me tell you, by the time you're age 80, you know quite a, quite a bit. But, you know, to get your children exposed to this, to get them used to, like, doing something for others, even if it's bringing by your dog, your dog's going to love it, or your pair of dogs, or whatever you want. You know, just bring your love sponges by in retirement or elderly home. Most of the times, you can just walk in. They just think you're, you know, you, they just think that you're, uh, you know, someone's relative. You know, if you can, ask them. They'll say, yeah, yeah, you know what? Tuesday afternoons would be great because we don't have anything going on for them on Tuesday afternoons. You know, they got movie day and they got bingo night and yeah, they, they try to do their stuff, but what you would be, you'd be the icing and candles on the cake, especially at a lower income place where it's basically just older people in a room or in bed all damn day long until they die. How we treat our old, our elderly is also quite often said, you know, is a way a society is judged is like, how do we treat our elderly? And I have to tell you that it is really pretty bad the way we treat our elderly in this country. So anyways, this is a little off subject. It's a little bit of a life lesson from my experience uh, from being a child up to being age 50 now. You can really make a difference. Uh, I mean, the the loneliness, the sheer loneliness and boredom that some of these people have is just insane. They were giants. They were titans of their era. era. They did great and wonderful things. They raised children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and now that they've become infirmed and feeble and Sometimes they've lost their memory and gone into dementia, which is a horrible, horrible way to die. You know, their family has basically abandoned them because they're too busy. Um, if you can, please do try. It will be very well received. And this is Steve Harris for the Survival Podcast with a little bit off the subject answer for you. Uh, I'll talk to you later. You know, I, I I thought for my segment today I would kind of expand on this thought from Stephen Harris, and I kind of wanted to point out that there's always more than one way to help a specific group of people. Because, you know, Steve talked about, like, let's say visiting folks at an old folks' home, and there's people that feel like, I'm just, I don't want to do that. And I, I, I understand. And I think that, like, so one of the ways that a problem can become worse is by people not helping because they don't want to do what they think is necessary to help. And I don't mean that they don't want to help. I don't mean that they're not willing to help, it, but they they feel like, well, that's not me. I, I, I really can't do that. And I, I can tell you that it was a struggle for me every time I went to see my father-in-law, Fred, at uh, this memory care facility called Silverado. And, and But I went because it was him. And I always wanted to see what I could do to help people there, but it's, it was a very uncomfortable place for me to be. 
it's it was a lot like a really really nice hospital crossed with a restaurant. I mean, this place if you're going to be stuck somewhere with dementia, it's probably the best place I, I've ever seen. We certainly spent you know months as we knew we were going to come to that decision eventually finding the best place we could. It was about as good as it gets, but it still had a hospital like feel to it, and that's not me, man. I I don't think I could have a job in a hospital. I I you know I. Pfft. If I'm in a hospital, it's because I need to get well desperately, and I'm going to get the hell out of there as quick as I can. Um, so the problem is then when you, you start suggesting things, and it's the same reason that, like, with my tenets of modern survival philosophy, my my last tenet is what you do matters and make your own plan. Because if I if I tell you you have to do these ten things specifically this this way. Then you fall out because I, well, you get right up to the point where I really don't want to do that, and you find a reason not to. So I think a lot of people look at something like this problem, and this is a big problem. This is a huge problem, and they say, "Well, because I don't want to go visit old people at an old folks' home that they can't do something." And, and Steve just gave you an incredible variety of things that you can do. Before I give some thoughts on this, I want to talk about sort of how this became a problem. When you look around at other cultures in the world that don't really have this problem, what you see are multi-generational households. And grandma, grandpa, etc. are in the house with the kids. And this solves a lot of problems in life because when the kids come home from school, grandma's there, what have you. But the reason that we don't do that isn't because we all got together and decided once a person hit a certain age, we didn't give a damn no more. That's not... That's not what's happened. One of the things that happened is we went from one parent working households to two parent working households. And you'd think that would have actually increased the number of, you know, in-laws living with kids and stuff like that. And at first it sort of kind of did. But what also happened is women as women came up in the workplace, developed their independence, couples became more affluent in the middle class. And, frankly, people like their freedom and their independence. And the mindset changed not just with the young person looking to the old person, but the middle-aged person as they aged, not from, well, if I'm there, I'm this asset. If I'm there, I'm this burden was one of the things. So a lot of old people resisted that. And now we have multiple generations of that. But the other thing wasn't, that they would be a burden. The other thing I think is a bigger thing, and I think this will be a struggle for me as I age if I end up in this type of situation, um, I don't want to live in someone else's home. I mean, I think most people can understand that. I don't want to live in the home owned by my son. I want to live in my home. And you can understand that. And I think a lot of this, this delta has been created because older folks want their freedom. They want the ability to set the damn thermostat wherever the hell that they want it. They want the ability to come and go as they please without... And even you say, well, if I had my dad or my mom or my mother-in-law living in our home, I'm not going to tell them when to be home and when to go. Have you ever been a guest for more than a day or two? Don't you kind of feel sort of like I have to build, you know, because it's their home, I have to manage my life around their needs. And I think things like tiny houses have an ability to solve that problem in multiple directions. 
I can see someone setting up, and, and, and again, I'm not a huge fan of the rolling tiny house. I think they are death traps on wheels. Um, but I understand why they're done sometimes just to get around codes. But if you don't have the code problem, I can see putting in small houses. I mean, if you want the way to build a small house, you, you, you go to Home Depot or Lowe's or a direct uh, builder, and you pick out a floor pan you like in a tough shed-style building, and you say, I want this one delivered to this spot, and they come, they put it there, and then you, you foam insulate it, and you finish it out, and you end up with a very stable, very climate-stable structure. And how much does this cost? A hell of a lot less than all these other bullshit options you see. Uh, we have, it's a, I believe it's a 12 by 16. It might be bigger than that. I'm looking at it right now trying to remember. I think it's 12 by 16 with a loft. Now, old person, you probably don't want to put them up in a loft, but it is storage space. And we had that installed for around $3,400, I think, $3,400, somewhere in that range. That's about 200 square feet. And that's as big as many of these teeny houses, these tiny houses. And it's quick and it's done. And you throw some windows in it and it runs some electric, electrical uh, to it and, and what have you. And, you know, you can, you can turn that pretty quick. That could be done in a way where older folks, if they want to live in a small house, fine. But it could also be done, you know, could you see partnering with an older person that has a few acres and putting those in? And then f helping them find tenants. Maybe you even take the first one yourself and you build them. And then you're there and you do a good job of screening people, you know, that you let in so that you make sure that they're going to be valuable. And can you see how valuable it might be to an older couple or an older single person who's trying to hold on to their property so that they can live where they wanted to be till the day that they die to have two or three or four individuals that are there? that are living that kind of lifestyle they want to live at the same time they can be of service? And do you see how much easier that might be then? Or like Steve was saying, if you have a mobile tiny house, you're looking for a place to put it, can you see how that would work? Can you see how maybe somebody that's technology astute might figure out to basically be the Airbnb of this type of thing? Matching people up? providing the ability for people to have a background check. Because, you know, this thing, background checks are expensive. They're not very expensive, and they can be done for the person that wants them done. That's how most of them are done now anyway. So you self-certify yourself by ordering your own background check and paying for it. And that way, you know, you're not putting some guy that's been to jail 17 times for cooking meth in the back of some old lady's yard. But there's a way that that could be done. And then there's no need to be for evangelism to go out and help people figure out how to use that because these older people aren't necessarily astute at using these types of websites and things like that. And, and, and I, I'm telling you that the solutions to this problem are not complicated. The problem's complicated, but in the words of Bill Mollison, in, in general, though the problems are complicated, the solutions are embarrassingly simple. But the, the, the thing with this one is there's thousands of different ways to come at it. And what I'd like to challenge you to do over the weekend is think about how, in some small way, you might be able to contribute to any solution, no matter what it is, including solutions we didn't talk about. Don't, don't always look to me for all the solutions or Steve or any council member or any uh, authority figure or expert or uh, industry expert or whatever to always have all the solutions. There's... There's as many solutions to this problem as there are people suffering from it. 
You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of things that, that that could be done to, you know, alleviate a lot of these problems. And government's in a way of a lot of it. You know, I think one of the best things we could do is start putting daycares in old folks' homes. That's been done in a few test cases, and it's worked really well. But you got to have a certain level of person. Uh, it's, you know, you couldn't do that at, at, you know, a memory care facility where person all of a sudden thinks it's their baby and takes it and runs away with it. I mean, that was always we, – we brought Teague in there, but we always were, you know, mindful that you had to make sure that something like that didn't happen because uh, that's the kind of thing that happens when people lose their, their faculties. So you have to have, you know, older people that are still able to get around a bit and, and, and have their faculties to do something like that, but that's another opportunity. Um, setting, you know, there's things like they call it visiting angels and what have you, but, you know, I see an opportunity there to maybe take people that aren't that old yet, but they're, they're retired, and do it more of a voluntary thing. Meals on Wheels is a great idea, but you know what I've, I've seen from it and the few times we've been involved with it, the food sucks. The food sucks, and, and, and the people that they bring it to don't want to eat it. There's there's an opportunity to help in that way too, though. And, and I think sometimes maybe we need to think small instead of big and decentralized instead of centralized. Sure, if you try to create the next new Meals on Wheels, there's a mountain of government bullshit to get through. But if you organize your church or any kind of a group or next door neighbors or whatever it is and say, why don't we just find 10 elderly neighbors and between the 10 of us, we'll all take them each one meal a week. We'll rotate. We'll just, just do it. We won't ask anybody's permission. We're not going to charge anything. We're not going to form a nonprofit. We're going to do real charity, which means we're going to pony up the money to make one meal a week per person and just go visit them and see them and tell them that we did this because they're awesome and we want to want to help them out because they were a great part of our community and we want to make sure that they're not forgotten. Talk about changing lives. And then you're going to visit a different person every week, and they're getting a different person to come visit them. Maybe 10 weeks is too long a rotation. Maybe it's a four-week rotation. I don't know. But you see how simple that really is. It's a couple hours of your time, an hour to put something together, an hour to go visit them. Is that what you should do? I don't know. Does that work for you? Is that something you can see yourself doing? If not, what can you see yourself doing? And I think a bigger thing to do is then look at this same type of application to what, you know, if this isn't the problem that you want to address in the world, it's okay. It's okay. We all have different skills. We all have different gifts. So pick a problem and pick a solution. That's, that's how you change the world. Pick one problem and pick one solution that you can be part of and do that. And teach others the same. Not, hey, come come, come, get on board with my problem and my solution. Here's my problem and my solution to it. Oh, you'd like to help with this one? That's great. You, This isn't your thing? Go find a problem and find a solution and be part of it. It'd be, it'd, it'd be amazing if, if 5% of this country would just take up that mentality in a year what it would do. It would literally be earth-shattering. It would be life-altering for everybody in the country. And then, here's a challenge. The best way you get people to do something is to make it something that's considered cool to be doing. I mean, look how many people ran around in years past, you know, wiggling their waist with a hoop going around it because it was cool, or playing with a freaking yo-yo because it was cool, or today... 
flipping a, a fidget spinner because it was cool. I know that's mostly kids, but it's the same concept. When people look at somebody and they're doing something and they think that's a good thing to be doing, I admire that person. Generally, you get more of that behavior. Just my thoughts on this issue. And thanks to Steve for bringing it up. With that, if you like this show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can help support it is by doing your online shopping through tspaz.com. Whenever you're going to shop online, no matter what you're going to buy, just go to tspaz.com first. And, you know, click a link, take a look at the deals of the day over on Amazon, take a look around Amazon and see if there's anything, you know, if you can find what you're looking for there. And if you buy it there, you support the Survival Podcast. It's that easy. Uh, the other thing you can do is check out all of our reviews. <clears throat> We review products pretty much on a daily basis. Uh, and occasionally I bring products back around that have been around before. This is one of those. And I'll probably be bringing some more products back around because we're heading into winter. And it's time to start thinking about winterizing and getting prepared for colder weather uh, and getting through colder weather. This is one of the best products for that that I've found. It's called the ThermoCube. And it is deceptively simple in its elegance. It looks like an adapter plug. Like you plug it into the wall and then there's two outlets. So you make one outlet and a two. The one particular one that works really good in the wintertime What it does is there's a little switch. It's basically a mercury switch. Now, you know how that mercury switch is. It's mercenaries, and like it's so complicated. It's, it's pretty damn simple. It, mercury moves when, when, when temperatures change, and that switch is designed so that basically when it gets down to a certain temperature, it turns on. And that temperature for this particular model is 35 degrees, <clears throat> and it turns on something. Whatever it is. It's just electric. It's on or off is all that this thing is. <clears throat> and when it hits 35 degrees, it comes on. And then it stays on until it reaches a temperature of 45 degrees. And it goes off again until it gets back down to a temperature of 35 degrees. I think you can see where this would be useful. If you have a stock tank heater that doesn't have a built-in switch, and some of them do, um, this would be one example of what you could do. What I did with it is I had a heater in my greenhouse. And it just turned the heater on whenever the temperature got below 35 degrees and turned it back off whenever the temperature got to 45 degrees. Uh, there's just a, a litany of things that this will do for you. Um, another use that I used it for, in Arkansas, we had issues where it got really cold and we'd have the pump house for the well freeze up. So I just got me a spiffy 100-watt light bulb and I got me a spiffy second 100-watt light bulb. Two is one and one is none, and this thing happens to have two plugs in it. And I put those in, 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 in on the little clamp things like you use for a brooder lamp, and I stuck them in there and pointed them at the, uh, the, the well pump head. And then I plugged this thing into the power outlet and plugged those in there, and, of course, they didn't come on because it wasn't cold. And what would happen? Well, when the temperature hit 35 degrees, those 200-watt light bulbs would come on, and that was enough to keep my pump from freezing up. That's all that it took. And then when it got to, like, well, it could get really hot, 200-watt light bulbs in a pump. Yeah, you know, I got to 45 degrees, it went off. Back down to 35, back on. All by itself. And that way, if one of the light bulbs went, I'm tired, I'm done, pop, well, I still had one. So I'd check it every couple of days, and if a light bulb had burned out, you know, you dingle, 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 put a new light bulb in there. Boy, I'll tell you what, the few bucks this cost, saving your well pump from freezing up one time, let me tell you, that's an investment you made well right there. I promise you that's a good investment. We had temperatures last year so cold in our little pump house here. That I mean, it was, when I took a drive the day of that one cold snap, 
there were ice sculptures everywhere, if you get my drift, where pipes had busted and ruptured and then just, yeah, I mean, and we didn't have any. I took a little space heater because I knew it was going to be even cold for a light bulb. And I took a little space heater and I put it in there and I plugged one of these things in. And 35 degrees, 45 degrees, boom. 35, 45, boom. I'm telling you, this thing will save you money. And how much does this amazing piece of technology cost? Uh, they're like they're like $12.95. And you can find them some other ones. You can find them on at zero and off at 10 on at 120 and off at 100 for maybe running cooling equipment, on at 20 and off at 30, on at 35, off at 45, kind of the most useful one, um, and on at 78 and off at 70. So that's another thing you can use for cooling. So there's a lot of different options. Uh, but again, the, the on at 35 and off at 45 seems to be the most universal one, so that's the one I have the direct link to. But again... You can get uh, all my reviews. You can find out everything that we got going on uh, as far as recommendations for Amazon. Every review has little tags in the bottom that you can see, like all of our cooking or all our electronics and stuff like that. And anytime you shop through tspaz.com, you help Survival Podcast and the work that we do here, uh, no matter what you buy. And that's that's really a cool way to help support the Survival Podcast. Just tspaz.com. It's easy to remember, tspaz.com. Uh, next up, we've got our song of the day today, and our song of the day today is uh, is a cool one. It's by, honestly, my favorite Beatle. My favorite Beatle was George Harrison, um, and it's called Any Road. And it's it's a really cool song, and it, 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 doesn't, it ain't one of these songs you really have to think about to understand what he's saying. The basic concept is that if you don't know where you're going, it doesn't matter what road you take. And that's a lot deeper than it sounds on the surface, but uh, I wanted to read you a bit of the song facts on this. Uh, this was Harrison's last album he recorded before his death in 2001. He could not finish recording before he died, so the album was completed by his son, Dahani. Uh, and George's son, Dahani, said that while he and his father were in Hawaii, they walked by a beach and they saw a sign that read as follows. If the wind blows, you can always adjust your sails. But if you don't know where you're going, then any road will take you there. And that became the inspiration for the song. I kind of want to merge this with the fact that George Harrison died at 58 years old. Uh, from complications due to uh, non-small cell lung cancer that not only was in his lungs but had spread through metastasizing to his brain. And uh, he actually got a clean bill of health the first time he was diagnosed, and they thought it was gone, and then it came back and, again, metastasized to other parts of his body, including his brain, and eventually he lost his battle uh, with cancer. He personally attributed 100% to smoking, and I think that's pretty logical, Uh there are a few people that develop lung cancer that don't smoke, but it's very, very rare in comparison. And I think there's a message there, and I'll let you figure it out for yourself if you smoke. I'm not going to get on your shit today about that. Here's what I am going to get in your shit about, knowing where the hell you're going. That's what this song's about. And whether it's lung cancer or being hit by a gravel truck, we can all check out at 58 or 48 or 38 or 28. We just don't know. <clears throat> we just don't know how many days we have. I've talked about the example before. Like we might value life more if we did know how many days we had and everybody in their house, as part of your condition as being a life form, had a giant barrel full of marbles. 
And to go do shit that day, when you got up, you had to take a marble out of that bin and stick it in your pocket. And that represented your day. And at the end of that day, poof, the marble went away. And you had to watch that bin empty through your life. You might value your life a little bit more and what you do with it. Well, you don't have to do that. But that metaphor is what you're doing. Every single day that that sun goes down is a day you'll never have back to be able to do anything with. And we are all infected with a terminal illness. Being a human means being infected with a terminal illness called life. It is a wonderful gift. But if we do not see it for the gift that it is, it is a horrible curse. Because the longer you live, the longer you live and the more time you have that you waste, the harder it will be to be that old man or old woman we talked about today and look back and say, I could have, I should have, but I didn't. And I think the number one reason that people have that experience in their life is they don't know where they're going. Every day, literally tens of thousands of ships leave a port. And they say, well, we're going to go from Shanghai, China to Los Angeles, California, whatever it is, I don't know. San Diego maybe more likely. We're going to get there around 9 o'clock, 0900 on you know Tuesday the 15th or whatever. And damn if that ship does not pull into that port 99% of the time when they plan to be there, But if they don't, they either end up there a little early and sitting out at sea waiting for their turn to come in, or they end up a little late and the harbor master adjusts accordingly because they went around a, a storm or something like that. But they leave a place and they get to a place thousands of miles away as planned every time because that captain plots a freaking course and knows where he's going before he leaves. If he doesn't do that, the odds that they will end up where they're supposed to be when they're supposed to be there are infinitesimally against them. And how would they even know when they got there that that's where they were supposed to be? This is how far too many people live their lives. So my other challenge for you this weekend as we close down on a Friday is to figure out where you want to go. Notice I didn't tell you where to go. I think we have far too many people telling far too many other people where they should go and what they should be doing with their lives. And I find the people that are most adamant about what other people should be doing, you know, they're the person telling another person to put a fire extinguisher and a, and a smoke alarm in their house, and that they should do that, and it's really important, while their house is literally on fire burning to the ground. And people are like, don't you think you should do your house? No, nah, man, you need to put that. Your house is on fire right now. No, nah, you need a smoke alarm. Dude, your house, is, turn around, right? That's I see a lot of that. But what I don't see enough of is people just in being encouraged to believe in whatever they want to believe in, to set that goal and go for it. Because if you don't know where you're going, you might as well just get on any road and start driving. And if nothing else, do that and use the sights you see as they pass you by for encouragement to figure out what it is you really want. And then plot a course and realize you are the captain of your own ship called life. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
the spin of a wheel with the roll of the dice. Ah, yeah, you pay a fare, and if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Future through the space and the time, traveling deep beneath the waves, in watery grottoes and mountainous caves. But ah, oh Lord, we got to fight with the thoughts in the head, with the dark and the light. No use to stop and stare if you don't know where you're going. Any road will take you there. Teeth by the breadth of her hair, traveling where the four winds blow, with the sun on my face in the ice and the snow. But ooh, it's a game. Sometimes you're cool, sometimes you're lame. Ah,、oh, yeah, it's somewhere. If you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. The spin of the wheel with the roll of the dice. Ah, yeah, you pay your fare if you don't know where you're going. Any road will take you there. I keep traveling around the bend. There was no beginning, there is no end. It wasn't born and never dies. There are no edges, there is no sides. So far out, the way out is in. Bow to God and call Him sir, but if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. And if you don't know where you're going.